a little bit of a, this is a break from what we've been doing over the last several weeks. And indeed, um, the next couple of weeks are going to be a little bit out of order. But for those of you that have the sermon booklets and have been using those for notes, there are in the back of your booklet several blank pages um, to take notes for messages such as this one. For those of you who were fans of 80s television, and in particular the A-Team, you will remember that it was the great esteemed Colonel John Smith, known as Hannibal, who said, I love it when a plan comes together. And we have got a plan that has come together, not quite. Um, here is what's happening for us over the next couple of weeks. We've been working through First, and First Thessalonians. Um, over the course of the month of May, we are going to be devoting ourselves to praying for Southern Maryland. And the message here this morning is a uh, a primer for what, was, what is going to be going on in May. And so, a little bit disjointed. Um, that's here this week. Next week, we're going to have a speaker by the name of Hugh Welchel, who is from the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics. He's our second speaker that we've had this year from um, the Institute for Faith, Work, and Economics. And personally, I'm really excited to have Hugh come. I've been trying to get Hugh to speak here for over a year now, and really glad that it's working out. And what he's going to be talking on is the idea of how does our faith actually manifest itself um, in all of life, particularly when you live in a place in which most people around you don't share your faith and might even be hostile to it. What does it mean to live out and to manifest the love of Jesus and to show his grace in the challenges that we deal with and that many of you deal with um, throughout the rest of the week. So very excited to have Hugh, which, Hugh Welchel with us next Sunday preaching. Then on May 2nd, we're going to wrap up 1 Thessalonians on first, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And then after that, we're going to be taking a three-week break to focus on this prayer initiative of which I'm introducing here today. Once that's done, we'll then return back to 2 Thessalonians and continue the journey of learning what God did in the church in Thessalonica. As we turn to Acts chapter 4 here today, we are going to be looking at this passage in several different chunks as we follow the narrative that, that in the story. First off, we're going to be looking at the situation that the apostles and the disciples in the early church faced. After looking at the situation, we're going to examine the truth that motivated them and comforted them in the midst of their situation. After that, we're going to look at, in light of the situation and in light of the truth, their request that they make to God. And finally, those three things together, the situation, the truth, their request, we're going to focus on their response and a response that God is calling us to as well. So go to this passage. Let us pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would send your spirit to open up your word to us, to teach us by it to root in us, to impress upon us, to ground in us the truth of who you are and the impact that that has and the joyful motivation that that gives to us. Lord, bless our time here together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what was the situation going on in Acts chapter 4? This is several weeks, just a few months after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He has been resurrected from the grave. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem for 40 days after his ascension. There was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and people were hearing the good news of Jesus in a variety of different languages. God was then using the apostles to, to share the message of what Jesus had done, and they were, he was vindicating that message by them performing miracles and healings and signs and wonders. We find that here in Acts chapter 4. What has happened is that Peter and John are preaching and teaching. 
They have just healed a man who was lame, who was, um, who was lame, and they've healed him, and now they are being um, placed under arrest for the healing and for what they have been teaching. And this is where we find in Acts chapter 4, beginning at verses 1 through 4. It says this, And as they, John and Peter, were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed. And the number of men came to about 5,000. So what happened? They're, they heal this guy. They are preaching that this is done through Jesus Christ. And the same leaders, the same religious leaders who tried and killed Jesus, now bring Peter and John before them. They hear them. They put them in prison overnight. And then they, after hearing them and putting them in prison overnight, they call them back out to find out what they're doing, and they give them this charge. They say to them this, So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. And what had happened was the healing of this lame man. So what happens to them is that they are charged and threatened to not speak in the name of Jesus. And the situation that they are faced with and the situation of the church throughout the ages is that people always try to silence the good news of Jesus. That the gospel of Jesus is always, throughout the history of the world, has always been met with opposition. Now specifically what they were charged with here is that they were teaching people and proclaiming that in Jesus there was the resurrection of the dead of what they themselves also had seen and heard and experienced. And the religious leaders, it says, charged them not to teach or speak at all in the name of Jesus, and they threatened them if they did so. Now, is this a situation that just occurred at this one time at the beginning of the church? Absolutely not. We know from church history, we know from the story of missionaries around the globe, that the gospel has always been met with opposition. So too, what about here in America? This past week, I received a a legal bulletin from an organization that gives um, legal updates about issues facing churches. They give good legal counsel. This is not a fear-mongering organization. This is just awareness of what's happening on and, and how churches need to respond and to protect themselves from certain things that are going on in our culture. And in this bulletin, they highlighted several of the things of lawsuits and legal challenges to churches across our country currently. Several of the things they state are this, that today... There is an increasing number of scholars and judges who insist that the First Amendment only protects the freedom to believe and not the freedom to live out those beliefs. At least one state now compels employers to provide insurance coverage for elective abortions. Many cities nationwide ban religious employers from hiring and firing based on their religious convictions. Churches in our country are now facing litigation for holding their employees, including pastors or music directors, to a biblical sexual ethic. Pastors who teach the sanctity of human life and the creation of institution of marriage between a man and a woman are frequently labeled as political 
and are being threatened with the loss of their church's tax-exempt status for holding to these religious views. It's not simply those, those that are there in other places in the country, but here in our own community. Some of you in our own church, some of you in your workplaces, some of you are in your schools, have been told that you are not permitted to mention the name of Jesus in your mer- workplace, even if someone directly asks you about your faith or asks you what you believe, that some of you have been told you are not allowed to mention Jesus' name at all. Now, in the midst of that, American Christians are often shocked by resistance to the gospel message and just shocked and dismayed. And there is this sense that God is losing ground and the devil is winning because of this opposition. But we know from Scripture and what Scripture tells us what will happen, and we know from church history and what is happening in the globe what has happened, that there has never been a time when the gospel has not met opposition. And not exclusively, but oftentimes... Periods, the periods in church history and around the globe in the areas where there is the greatest resistance to the gospel have become the places where there have been the greatest spread and advancement and the greatest periods of growth in the history of the church. And that is the situation, is that the gospel is always met with opposition. And what Luke teaches us here in the book of Acts and how the saints respond And the truth that is encouraging to this situation is that this opposition around the globe that we might, that some might experience today, that we might experience today, that they experienced at the time of the early church, is actually a part of God's plan. And this is the truth that the believers responded to in understanding that situation. And the truth was this, is that God is sovereign, and he is sovereign no matter the situation. Notice how they respond to this, verse 23 of chapter, Acts chapter 4. When they were released, as Peter and John were released from prison, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and sea and everything in them, the truth that they rooted themselves in is that God is sovereign. That he is the sovereign over creation. That he is the creator, the creator. The one who has shaped and formed everything in this cosmos. That he is the designer of all that there is. That he is the king of kings. That he is the lord of lords. That he is the sovereign one who is over all of creation. Not only that is he sovereign over creation, but he is the sovereign over human history. Verse 25, it continues, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth, the sea, and everything in them, who, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage? Why do the Gentiles rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, They were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The truth that they they come back to is that God is sovereign. He is the sovereign over history. He is the sovereign over creation. And here in their prayer, they quote from Psalm 2. 
And Psalm 2 declares, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? Why did the kings of the earth set themselves against the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed one? This psalm was written a thousand years before the birth of Jesus Christ. It was written by David. And David, through God's spirit working in him, prophesied and foresaw and foretold a day when God's anointed one would indeed come. Anointed one in Hebrew is the word Messiah. That the Messiah was the one who would come, who would fulfill God's promise to make this world right again. To reconcile people to God and to one another. To redeem the created order as far as the curse is found. And he is saying, a thousand years before the birth of Jesus Christ, David is saying that the anointed one is coming. And when he comes, he will be met with opposition. That peoples and kings and rulers will plot against the Lord and against Jesus but their opposition will be in vain. And this prophecy here was specifically fulfilled in Jesus Christ, as it says in verse 27. For truly in this city, they were gathered against your holy servant Jesus. Who was gathered? Pilate, Herod, the Gentiles, people of Israel. And what did they do? To do whatever your, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, I understand that there are people who have Christians who have issues with the word being predestined. It's not my word, it's God's word. That's where we get it from. And what it says here is that because God is sovereign over history, that he is the Lord of creation, not just at the foundation, but actively at work throughout the days of mankind, that God is the sovereign one over history who has predestined, and they did whatever his hand to do, whatever God's hand had predestined to take place. Well, what was that? I mean, consider this, that God had caused even the enemies of God, those who were united in conspiracy against him, that God had caused even them to do what God had decided would happen according to God's sovereign plan of history. And all that had happened In the death and resurrection of Jesus, all that had happened in the betrayal of Jesus Christ, all that is happening in our world today is nothing more than what God had planned would have would happen. That the murder of Jesus Christ was not an expression. It was not the triumph of human power, but divine power. Because God had said, this is what would happen and this is what God would do to bring about the redemption of his people. What we need to understand here from this is that God is sovereign over history. That Christianity is not a religion that is based in abstract philosophical thought. It is not a religion that is based in generalized morality. But it is based in historical events as God has been at work in fulfilling his plan, his story that he said he would do long ago. It is a story that was that has been recorded and written in God's Word in the Bible. A story that was written in three language, languages, written on three different continents, written by over 40 different human authors. Over the course of 1,500 years, this story was written, and it all ties together into one story of what God has been doing. Not all these different stories, but one story of God's action in history. That climax in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ where there was this great exchange of all of our wrongs, all of our guilt and shame and the wrongs that we have done being nailed to his cross, everything wrong that we have done being put upon him, and everything that was good, right, and beautiful about Jesus Christ 
being credited to our account, given to us for those who turn and put their faith in him. And not only that, but God is at work, as Colossians says, reconciling all things to himself through his blood that is shed on the cross, whether in heaven or on earth. He is the sovereign over history. And because he is the sovereign over history, it is futile to scheme against a God who created the universe and even planned out the scheming of those who scheme against him. That was the truth that they clung to and reflected upon in Scripture based upon the situation that they were faced with and the opposition. But notice next their request. We looked at the situation, the truth that God is sovereign. Notice their request, verse 29 through 31. They pray two things in particular with one main emphasis. They say, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of Jesus, of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now look at their request. The first thing they request, they say, And now, Lord, look upon their threats. He's saying they're saying, Father, hear their threats. Consider what they are saying. It kind of stands out, it does stand out to me that they are not saying, Lord, change their threats. Stop their threats. But they say, look upon them. Consider their threats. Because they knew that God, who is sovereign over history, uses evil and the bad things of this world for his good purposes and to accomplish his plans. And in this prayer, they reassure themselves of this truth in the face of the persecution that they themselves are dealing with. But notice their main request is this. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Now again, this sometimes people wrestle with the tension, and it's a good thing to wrestle with, the tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. How to do these two things work together? Well, we see how it works together here in this passage. Is that God's sovereignty and the truth of God's sovereignty motivated them to action? It was God's sovereignty that motivated their human responsibility. Far from detracting from it, it actually inspired them to be more responsible to do what God called them to do. Why? Because the story of history is the story of the sovereign God who is over history, who is unfolding his plan of redemption, who is making sure that it is happening, who what he said would happen is actually occurring. And they, at that time, the apostles, and we, at this time, are living in the midst of the continuation of that plan. The same plan that foretold the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The same plan that told of the preaching of the good news of Jesus to the nations, that the people would hear the gospel. The same plan that gave the promise to Abraham, that through Abraham all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. The same, prom, the same plan that said that a day is coming when people of every tongue, tribe, and nation will join together and worship him. That same plan is the plan in which we are now a part of and in which they were at that time. Knowing that truth of God's sovereignty, that he is the sovereign over history, they saw the situation they were faced with. They understood and believed the truth that God is sovereign, and they saw, how, what does this mean for us? It means that right now, we get to participate in God's plan. We get to 
for them, they saw that we get to participate as message bearers, and so they pray to speak God's word with great boldness, that they would be undeterred by prohibitions and threats, that they would speak the word with great boldness, and they ask God to, to do miracles while they're doing it. Why? That the Holy Spirit would empower them in such a way that the name of Jesus would be vindicated as the good news of Jesus is told. Now, back to this tension of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Sometimes people say something like this, and wrestle with this truth question. They say, well, if God is sovereign, if, as Acts says, that he has predestined whatever God's plan had determined to take place, if that's true, why should I share my faith? If God's plan's already worked, why should I, why should I do that? God's already determined what's going to happen. Why should I bother doing it? I think how Peter and John would respond to that question is that they would say, What? Let me get this straight. The sovereign God of the universe, the one who created the cosmos and put the planets into orbit, the one who foretold thousands of years ago what he would be doing at this moment in time, this God who is unfolding his sovereign plan, who is making this happen and ensuring that it occurs, he he might possibly actually use me to do this? That my life actually matters? That, that my life fits into this plan of what God is doing in this world? How awesome! How could I not want to be a part of this? To me, as we think about it, it's a little bit of a, a funny question, particularly because in our culture, and in us as well, there is such a desire for our lives to have significance. Indeed, there is such a desire even for our, li- for, for our lives to be, um, you know, part of something greater. To be part of a, of a great plan and of a, of a great work. You know, we see this in some of the movies that have been popular recently. You consider the Lord of the Rings. You know, and the big question in the Lord of the Rings is who is the one? Who is the one that would bear the ring? Who is the one that, would, that will bring Middle-earth back to peace and harmony? Who is the chosen one that's going to make this happen? And everybody wants to be the one. And then when they find out that Frodo's the one, the question is, is the chosen one, is he going to fulfill the task that's been entrusted to, entrusted to him? Right? It's the question, who is it going to be? Who gets to be the chosen one to advance this plan that's been determined that's going to bring this back together? It's not a news story. In fact, in the 10th century... The story of King Arthur and Excalibur. That's where people think it originated from. And the question of who is going to be the one who is going to come and restore the sovereignty of Great Britain? Who would be the one that can pull the, sto- the sword out of the stone? And whoever it is, that is the one who is the chosen one that is going to bring back peace and order. Who, is, who can do it? And what happens is that every story of King Arthur, everybody else wants to be the one. Everybody wants to be the one who is going to be a part of this greater plan. We also see it in more popular things like the Lego movie. Right? Who is going to be the one that will find the piece of resistance and put the cap on the craggle? Who is it going to be? And it's this long, and Emma's like, it's not me, it's not me, it's not me. And then he finds out it really wasn't him, but we'll leave that part aside. Um, It's like, who's it going to be? Who, who's going to be the one that's going, to, that's going to bring this back together? And so this is such a longing within each and every one of us. And what the truth of Scripture is saying is that God is sovereign, and because God is sovereign, is that you are his chosen people. 
to accomplish his plan, to complete the task, to to bring about what he saw and what would make happen, and that God would actually use people like you. How awesome is that? And the apostles saw that and said, Lord, would you give us boldness that we wouldn't be disturbed by the things that we see, but that we would know that you are the sovereign one who was over history. And would you use us to bring about your plan at this time and in this place? But notice, that's the truth that they rested in. That was the request that they asked. But notice what their first response was. Their first response to the situation that they were faced with to the truth that they were considering, to the request that was before them, their first response was that because God is sovereign, they devoted themselves to prayer. Because God has a sovereign plan, they devoted themselves to pray. And that we are moved to pray because God is sovereign. They prayed. And we pray because of this truth. Whether or not you have sorted out in your mind how human responsibility and God's sovereignty works out and how those things interplay together, whether or not you've sorted that out, regardless of that, you pray because God is sovereign. Sometimes people ponder the, people ponder the question, well, if God's sovereign, if he's got a plan, if it's predestined, if God is sovereign, then why pray? Right? That's the question that we ask. But the question is actually backwards. For if you actually believe that God is not sovereign, why on earth would you pray? If you believe that God is not sovereign and that he cannot change situations, if you believe that God cannot supernaturally work through human actions and change the course of men, if you believe that God sovereignly cannot give people faith, if you believe that God cannot change people's hearts, if he cannot turn hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, if you believe that God cannot cause nations to rise and fall, why on earth do you pray? But we pray because God is sovereign. Because he is working out his plan. And it is prayer that God has ordained It is prayer that God has ordained to bring that plan to fulfillment in us and also through us. And because of that truth that God is sovereign in the situation that they were faced with, they devoted themselves to prayer. And when they prayed, God answered their prayer with an outpouring of their spirit upon them. These are people who are already believers, who already have the spirit. But God worked in an extraordinary way to answer their prayers for the advancement of the good news of Jesus because it was part of his plan and God used the prayers to make that happen. And where we find ourselves today is that we need, you, me, our community, is that we need God to hear and to answer that same prayer today. Let me connect this aspect of God's sovereignty and his plan into our church and to what God is doing in our midst. We believe that God is doing a work in this world. We believe what scripture says that the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. We believe that the day is coming when people of every tongue, tribe, and nation from the ends of the earth, of which we're now standing when that was told, but now the ends of the earth for us are on the other side of the globe. We believe that God is drawing to himself from people of every tongue, tribe, and nation, that the day is coming when we will gather together before the throne of God and fall down and worship him. 
We believe that that plan is at work, that the God who is sovereign over history is working that. What does that mean here for us? It means this, is that we believe that there are people in this community already there who God is and will be drawing to himself. Already there. We believe that right now God is already at work. That there are people who don't know the peace and the joy that comes through knowing Jesus Christ, that there are people who are already a part of his plan in our community right now, at this moment, and that God is working his plan of redemption to draw them into him to himself. We believe that right now there are people in your life and in your spheres of influence who God will draw to himself. And so what we are doing, when what we are going to be doing for the month of May, is that as a church, we are devoting ourselves to prayer for this plan to become a reality. We are devoting ourselves to praying to the sovereign plan of God and the sovereign God who is over all history to be praying for our community that God's work and his message and his hope would come to this community. Let me give you an example of what happened in our own community. A couple years ago, several of us were praying for our community. We were walking up and down Great Mills Road, praying you know, to ourselves, praying for God to do a work, praying for God to bring redemption to um, the brokenness that is there, to bring healing and wholeness to the brokenness that is there and the pain that's there and the alienation that's there. Some of the things we prayed for, God answered in a remarkable way. Other things that we prayed for, um, we're still praying for, and we haven't seen them, seen them happen yet. But one of, the, one, of, one of the things that we prayed for is that there was a strip club on Great Mills Road um, right by the library. And we, several of us, prayed in particular for God to close that strip club. And so we prayed, and we walked away, and nothing happened. About two weeks later, there was a dump truck that lost its brakes and drove through it. I'm serious. And we're like, wow. And so I thought, wow, God's shutting this place down. Well, what happened is that they repaired it and they opened up their doors. And about a year later, the owner of it passed away. And the county purchased the property and leveled it and now built that section of FDR Boulevard that's there. And it's gone. Why? Because God answers prayer. And when you drive on FDR Boulevard by the new firehouse that's there over to the library in Lexington Park, as you go by there, praise God for his answer to prayer and that he is a God that answers prayer. But as a church, for the month of May, we are devoting ourselves to praying for our community and in particular praying for our neighbors. And the goal that we have is that for our church is for us to pray for 10,000 homes in our neighborhoods, and to pray for them by name. 10,000 homes in St. Mary's County in your neighborhoods by name. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning, I love it when a plan comes together. And we've got a plan that has almost come together. But this is what we're going to be doing in the month of May, is focusing on praying for the neighbors that are around you and the people that are around you, asking for God's grace, for his blessing, for their flourishing, for his mercy to be poured out on this community. And why are we doing that? Because God is sovereign and because he is at work in this place. 
and because he is sovereign, and because he is at work in this place, and because we are here, we are devoting ourselves to praying for our communities. And so let us devote ourselves to praying for Southern Maryland. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you who are the sovereign Lord over history, Father, sometimes when we hear things that we hear, we see things that are happening in the news, in our own lives, in the community, we wonder if you are at work. And yet at the same time, Lord, we can pause and we can look at our own lives. And we can see in our own lives ways that you have worked in ways that we never saw. Who at the moment we just thought just a series of events happened, just a series of chance things had occurred. But we look back in our lives and we can see the way that you have been weaving events and circumstances and personal people and disappointments and opportunities and how you have been weaving those things together in our own life. Father, we praise you that we're not left stranded on our own. We praise you that you are working your plan to restore this world to redeem this place. Lord, we long for the day when that will be complete, when there will be no more tears and no more crying and no more mourning and no more pain because the old order of things have passed away. Lord, we long for that day. And Lord, we also rejoice as we look in the past and see how you have have worked your sovereign plan from thousands of years before and the fulfillment of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we stand in between those realities. And Lord, we stand today in this moment, in the midst of a history that you are sovereign over, and in which you are at work. And so, Father, we do pray as your people that you would use us, that you, Lord of creation, would use us to be instruments of your gracious plan. Father, we pray for those in our community that don't know you, but that will know you. Lord, bring that to fruition. Lord, redeem this place. Hear our prayer. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.